Welcome to the Color and Chaos Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today's a very special day, a very special conversation I get to have with somebody that has influenced me the most in my life when it comes to ministry, when it comes to loving others, and also even loving myself and being able to see how even in my weaknesses and in my pain or in my troubles or chaos, how the Lord is still sufficient and how He is still good. And this, this man has just ministered to me so much through my college years and even now. He is an author of many books. He has a website, Penetrating the Darkness, but he's just a constant source of encouragement for me. And when I started this podcast about two years ago, the, the first thing I thought about was if I can get Dr. Powell to be on this podcast, then it's all worth it. It's all worth it. So I just want to go ahead and throw it over to you, Dr. Powell. Thank you so much for being here. If you want to real quick, just tell a little bit about yourself and then we'll go from there. Yes, I'm from North Carolina, born in Rutherford County, uh, not quite in the mountains, but close. And I'm 71. We've been in Columbia, South Carolina since I started teaching at what was then Columbia Bible College in 1981, became Columbia International University in the early 90s. And I had 38 years full-time as a professor of church ministry with a lot of emphasis on courses on leading small group Bible studies, teaching the Bible, church leadership and administration, uh, foundations of ministry, and children's ministry was a course I taught for years. And it's been a high privilege I'm a member of a Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. I'm known around the church as Dolly's husband because she's been pianist there and still is since uh, 1983. And I've been on staff there twice for a total of about 10 years and Christian education. It's still my church. And now I get to do some pulpit supply uh, several times, usually in the summer when people are away. And I write my blog, uh, usually two main articles a month. And I'm currently starting work on a personal book, sort of a memoir of my lifelong struggle with areas of mental illness and how God's grace has sustained me all these years. So um, even though I am not teaching full time, I still teach some courses at Columbia International University and our AA program at the prison, as well as uh, on campus or online and leadership and ministry areas. So it is a high privilege. And I, I said this to you, Jonah, personally, but I want your listeners to know that Jonah was always an encouragement to me. He took a lot of my classes because he was in the church ministry major, family and church education major, part of that. And if he felt like a session ministered to him or something I said or wrote ministered to him, he would let me know. So uh, when it comes to relating to people and encourage them, I want to be like John Affair. I know that you've shared it with me personally, but for the listeners or the viewers, if you could just share a little bit about how you came to know Jesus and what that looked like. Yeah, the family I was born in, in Western North Carolina, my father had a seventh grade education. My mom only a fifth grade. Mm. And with that educational lack, they worked in textile mills, sort of menial tasks and hard work for low wages most of their lives. And I lived on a dirt road in the country outside Caroline, North Carolina. It's a county that borders Spartanburg County in South Carolina, but it's Rutherford County. And my father loved the Lord and taught an adult Sunday school in a small independent church called Faith Temple and took us to church regularly. My mom, perhaps, with a lot of mental illness in her background, I realize now, and a lot of depression mm. and worse and attitudes, I was a believer, but probably not as vital a strong one as my father. My father was emotionally very sensitive, would often weep listening to hymns, and I'm a lot like him in that regard. But uh, his faith is what was the anchor to our home and probably is the reason his testimony that I am a follower of Christ and in ministry today. Um, I cannot tell you a day and time that I came to faith in Christ. I was in a little country Pentecostal church growing up, and uh, we had many altar calls, and I know I felt conviction. I understood what sin was, and I understood mm -hmm. a little about the cross. And so more than once I came forward to give my life to Christ in conviction. And I know even if I can't tell you a day and time or even a year, I know that I was serious, and I know the Lord met me. Yeah. And I was called to ministry while in college. 
I was playing baseball on scholarship for Wingate College. It was then a two-year school in North Carolina, four-year now. And after my sophomore year, I played semi-pro baseball, had a chance to go to UNC Chapel Hill and the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference, and play baseball. And that summer, I felt called to ministry in a very vibrant church I was attending in Lenore, North Carolina, while I played semi-pro baseball up there. And I never doubted then that I was called a minister. I didn't know if that meant a pastor Mm -hmm. or whatever. It turned out it was primarily as a teaching role in school, Mm -hmm. but also a writing role as well. I've never doubted that call. In Scripture, the idea of a call is primarily dealing with salvation. Mm -hmm. If you talk about walk in a manner worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4.1, or 1 Corinthians, they were told to consider their call at late in chapter 1. That's referring to their salvation. Call away from one way of life to another, away from Satan's domain to the Lord's. But uh, that doesn't negate the fact that God calls some to vocational ministry, but he calls all into their particular role, even if it's in the marketplace. I was referring to calling to a vocational ministry, Mm -hmm. but biblically calling is predominantly a calling to the Lord for a relationship. I know you shared a little bit about growing up and your family's history with mental illness. And I know you shared a little bit about your yourself. Can you share a little bit of that story? What did that kind of look like as you were growing up? When did you start discovering like, wait a minute, I I think maybe the way that I'm processing things may be off a little bit. What did that kind of look like for you? Well, I was 10 years old in 1959. So with my parents' educational level and with psychology and counseling, in the field where it was then or where it wasn't, um, the idea of getting counseling in my family and my family history uh, was not even considered. The idea of going to a physician to try to find physical causes of some Mm. people's depression, um, it just wasn't even an option. But I look back now as I'm reflecting on what the writing project I'm about to launch, and I see things that had to be childhood depression. I would sit, now this was over a period of years, and it was, but a lot of weeks, especially late in the day, Sundays when I was left alone by mom and dad, when they went to night church with my Mm -hmm. brother and sister who were older, and my grandpa across the dirt road uh, to sort of care for me. But I would sit on the back doorstep as a child and see the sun go down behind mountains on the western horizon of the Blue Ridge, and I would cry. Uh, I would feel an extreme loneliness, an extreme despair, but there wasn't a reason I could identify. Now, I later had some trauma related to my family and my mother leaving my dad for someone else, but this was before them. I can't explain to you why I felt such pain, why I'd be overwhelmingly sad. Now I realize it was probably a genetic endowment because my mother was very much this way, a very negative, very uh, depression-prone, very anxious. And, she, of course, she never got any type of help we would have today for that. But um, but I, depression to me started there, and I can't tell you why I felt that way. As I grew into adolescence, I was always hypersensitive, whether it was a girl's remark or some friend rejecting me. That's hard on any adolescent. But mm-hmm. I was super sensitive, extremely shy socially, and even had self-destructive patterns. Uh, I remember more than once taking my fist. I was an athlete, six foot four back in those days, 215 pounds. Wow, I'd love to love to be that big now. And I would literally take my fist. I would get so mad at myself for wasting my time academically or being too shy to ask girls out. I would beat myself up with my fist when nobody was around until it hurt so bad I had to stop. I'm not proud of that, but I mean, that, I, was an, I was a mess. I needed help, but I never got it. And that continued to some degree through college. So I had a very negative self-concept. I had an extremely negative view of my accomplishments or lack of them. In fact, I went reversal. I went into college having a C average in high school, not, not even getting into a university I wanted to go to in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I was so determined, and I prayed a lot about it, too. I'd cry, beat myself up, and I'd pray all in, all in the same hour. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went to um, junior college, and I was determined to make something. I went from a straight-A student there from the C student I was in high school. And, um, and, 
and from then on, academically, I performed well. But it was really a vain attempt to prove my worth. I'm glad I did well. I'm glad I was disciplined and it later helped me out in my career. But at the same time, it was still emotionally a difficulty because I was trying to prove my worth rather than be, see my identity in Christ had I grasped now and realized I don't have to prove anything. Mm. I don't perform to prove anything. I, I do that for the glory of God through my ministry now. But, but even when I, my grades got better and I started dating in college and had more social confidence, I still had a lot of depression. I would still throw clocks at the wall and go into many pizzas when I was upset. Um, and I would still cry a lot and feel sad a lot. Mm. It's just that I was able to perform in the background. What would you say are the primary uh, kind of symptoms of depression as, as you walk through it with all these years? Because I think there's a lot of people that hear that word and it, you know, maybe it becomes a cliche to them. It helps somebody to understand what that looks like. Well, I will generally give some things about me and then I would like to actually read a literal definition and symptoms from literature. Uh, that I wrote recently for an organization that I did not make up. Um, as an adult, I can have two extremes when I'm in a depressive episode. One of those extremes is I can be hypersensitive and my heart literally aches without necessarily a reason why. I can hear a song from the 50s on an oldie goldie show or record and I'll start crying in the car because those were painful years. Or the least little thing happens that everybody goes through these stressors and I will overreact and feel like my life is hopeless. So one area is extreme emotionalism, tears and literal heartache, mm. breaking without always telling you, being able to tell you why. The other is emotional numbness. I'm robotic. I don't have much motivation. It's like I'm fighting a high humidity in the heart. Even my gait, physical gait, walking to car to the house or to the school office is slower. Uh, and that's in the literature, by the way, a slow gait. Uh, and so I, and I couldn't cry if you paid me big bucks for it. I don't feel anything. And I don't know which is worse, mm. uh, to feel numb or emotionally robotic or to feel hypersensitive and, and cry and hurt. But both of those extremes on the pendulum, I have felt it usually comes with hopelessness. Now, I'm not saying this is objectively the case. It's just what happens to me. A fog descends on my thinking. I tend to think negatively. I tend to whether it's weight control or whether it's a book I want to do or whether it's improving a relationship with a grown son. I get negative and saying it's never going to happen. I start disbelieving what I believed before not necessarily doctrinally, but about how God will work in my life. Mm. And a lot of sadness, very little laughter and cheer. Still self-condemnation. I don't hit myself anymore, but there's still a tendency to be very, very tough and not give myself grace. Uh, negative thought patterns. When I talk about depression, I'm talking more or less the clinical definition of what's called major depression or um, chronic depression. Chronic simply means recurring over time more than once. Mm -hmm. And it's a pattern, even though it may not always characterize you. But this is on the websites, mental health websites, by people a lot smarter than me. Depression is a dip in mood that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest in normal activities. It is more than the blues or temporary discouragement. We all face that. To be diagnosed with a major depressive disorder, a person must experience at least five of the following symptoms for a period of at least two weeks in duration. And that they've come up through this with a lot of research. These symptoms, five or more, need to be there constantly for two weeks or more. Feelings of sadness, emptiness, or hopelessness. Outburst of anger and irritability or frustration even over small matters. Third, loss of interest in most normal activities that you normally enjoy, whether that's sex, hobbies, sex and marriage, of course, hobbies or sports. Also, sleep disturbances. Some people who are depressed sleep too much. They don't even want to get up to start the day and others have insomnia. Tiredness or lack of energy. There's a they found that there's a lack of physical energy because of the effect of all this mood has on your body. 
reduced appetite and weight loss, or conversely, increased cravings for food because it gives you a little bit of stimulation to eat. Mm. Anxiety, agitation, restlessness. One expert, in fact, a man I'm seeing now as a counselor, I never give up hope that God can use that. I saw a counselor last week. He's almost my age still in counseling full time. He's an elder of his church and he has a doctorate in clinical psychology and is an expert on depression. And he says in about 50% or more of people who we've seen who are depressed, they also have extreme trouble with anxiety and worrisome nature. Slowed thinking, speaking, or bodily movements. I mentioned a slow gait. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt. Fixating on failures and self-blame. That's certainly been true of me. Trouble thinking or concentrating or making decisions. Frequent or recurrent thoughts of death and suicidal thoughts. By God's grace, I've never attempted suicide, but I've thought about it hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And in my worst episodes, I sometimes said, Lord, please let me die in my sleep. Mm-hmm. I have a post on my blog, a uh, reason not to take my own life uh, when those thoughts come. And then unexplained physical problems, even back pain or headache. It's not saying that all these things are necessarily an indication of depression, but if you have five or more, the experts are say over two weeks, that's a pretty good indication. It's not mm-hmm. like you can you can objectify the diagnosis always like you can a physical problem, like mm-hmm. a tumor in the body. Major depression is usually recurring. About 80% of people in one study I read recently who has been diagnosed with one episode of major depression, 80% will have those episodes periodically all their lives. They may or may not be very successful in their field. It may be manageable depression, but they still go through it. Somehow, by God's grace, I don't recall ever missing a class as a professor in my now counting the adjunct years, 40 years here at CIU. But there have been days I wanted to. There have been days I had to pray my eyes out and cry before I went to class so I could teach with some enthusiasm and conviction. And then I might come back to the office on my worst days and lay in the floor in a fetal position, Mm. totally immobilized. But God gives grace to continue um, for for me. He hasn't taken it away, but he has given many areas of grace, which I'll get to later, to help me to be sustained during those episodes so I don't go into grave sin like I'm tempted to, or so I can still represent him as a teacher and writer. One of the things that influenced and impacted me the most about you wasn't necessarily the information that you were you were giving, but it was your tears. I, I remember that clear as day. I remember the first class I had with you was a class that we we all had to take because you know at Columbia International uh, it used to be required that you had to get a Bible major, and. I, I forgot what class it was. It's an introductory course in teaching the Bible. Yes. And and so I had to have that class with you. So it was my first time meeting you. And I remember many times that you would start crying in class when you started talking about the Lord's faithfulness despite your weakness. And I just remember that standing out to me because I was just thinking like, my God, this is like a holy moment. Like I'm able to look and see you literally working in the life of someone, not just based on the information that is being reciprocated, but you can literally see you working, Lord, your grace just working in our professor. And I remember even then I was just like, man, I want to, I want to learn from those tears. And I know there's one thing that you said many, many times in class, but you called it divine curriculum when, when it comes to pain. The divine curriculum, that pain is like a divine curriculum. It's a curriculum that you're enrolled in, and and the the Lord is working in the midst of that pain. Can you speak a little bit more about that, of just little moments that stand out to you, of lessons that you've been able to learn through the midst of those struggles, of those moments of weakness? I want your viewers of the podcast to know that when I do weep, when I preach or teach, I'm not always giving an illustration from my life of my depression, mm-hmm. how God has helped me. But the fact that I have been broken by this type of emotional pain means that I may be teaching a truth that has encouraged me greatly and sustained me. Mm. In that setting, I may or may not explain how it helped me through depression. But I feel very deeply because that truth has been touched, has touched me. Mm. It either convicted me, caused me to repent of sin, or it's sustained me and kept me going. 
And I tell people, even though and a handful of people view it as weakness, uh, nonetheless, I will never apologize for tears when I'm weeping over the impact God's word has had on me. Mm. Uh, I don't weep for dramatical purposes. I never plan it into my messages. Yeah. It is not uncommon to weep briefly, not every time I preach, but even if I'm not giving any personal story because what I've felt has touched me. I was in a meeting for three of us when we were without a senior pastor, one layman with a doctorate in New Testament, an assistant pastor and I were in a meeting planning a sermon series because we didn't have a senior pastor. That was about a decade ago. And one of the guys uh, who knew me fairly well, he went to CIU for one of his degrees, but he says, not only when I weep, but also just my passion when I would speak. You, mm-hmm. you get so intense, you get so personal, you get, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're so passionate. How do you do that? Yeah. And I went and told my wife what he said. My wife said, I'll tell you exactly why you speak with passion, because you hurt more than he has. And in that hurt, God has become real. Whether you're talking about that hurt or not, you have experienced the goodness of that word. And mm. now you have excitement about sharing. Yeah. Uh, if there's, it's about writing and speaking. If there's no tears in the writer, there'll be no tears in the reader. Tears are not always a sign of weakness. I've done a study in scripture of all the tears in the Bible. And uh, there is a kind that God shuns. It's weeping over his lack of blessing when you're living an outright sin. <laughs> um, you're to alter crying before the Lord because he hasn't blessed you in the book of Malachi. And the Lord says, you're weeping before me because I haven't blessed you. And you're, you're not being true to the wife of your youth. So uh, that's what I call the tears of a sentimentalist. Mm. But God loves a broken heart. Psalm yeah. 71, 23 and following and so forth. And yeah. Psalm 51, rather, the words of David. And uh, as well as uh, one of the other Psalms, Psalm 73, talk about brokenness God does not despise. Yeah. I remember a commentary on Revelation, and the commentator was saying that Revelation wasn't written without tears, and it won't be understood without tears either. That's something that I always think about when it comes to tears. The time that we're living in, there's a huge emphasis on feeling, having a a type of emotional response to the Lord, whether it be through a worship service, whether it be through reading a book, or even reading the Bible. And I, I know sometimes there's inclination within me and many of us that when we don't feel uh, the Lord, when we don't feel a certain way that we expect that we should feel or that somebody says that we should feel, you know, maybe we see the passion in you or or somebody sees the passion in me or or elsewhere and and they want that passion. They maybe don't feel that passion and they get discouraged and it leads to even more negative emotions. What would you say when it comes to feelings and your relationship with the Lord? How have you been able to sustain and foster that relationship with the Lord through the Holy Spirit, even in the moments where you may not feel like like He's there or feel a certain way. I am a deep feeling person that, that has strengths and weaknesses, but as you would certainly agree, we do not form our theology based on feelings. Mm. Uh, God's truth is objective. Uh, for example, uh, you've heard me use this term. John Piper popularized it in a book called Future Grace in the 1990s. A chapter on future grace and despondency. It's a beautiful chapter on depression. And basically, I've learned to preach to myself truth, even when it goes against my feelings. And I know it's partly my own weaknesses, maybe the enemy's involved in whispering lies, he's a slender, but sometimes I may think or feel that God doesn't love me because he doesn't answer certain prayers, or that God isn't with me. Give you an example. Around 2002-3, I mentioned that was a very dark period in terms, it was also ironically the 2002-2003 school year. We used to see without knowing the other names where an undergrad faculty ranked out of 27 faculty then um, and where we ranked on a scale, even if our objective class data was good, where are we in our global ratings? The, Mm. The year that I had to actually stop class because I was weeping uncontrollably and I wasn't talking then. I was just hurting. I had to go wash my face, come back and finish the lesson. I never talked about why I was weeping because I couldn't tell them why I was Mm -hmm. hurting. But that was my highest rated year ever, the year I was weakest. God has a great sense of humor. But in other words, I was walking to class once that day. And again, it wasn't audible, obviously. I believe the enemy whispered, 
why, why don't you cancel this class? It was right after lunch. Go home and go to bed. You know you'd like to. Well, yeah, I would. I'm talking back to myself in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it says, when's the last time you felt God's presence anyway? Christians are supposed to be marked by joy. God hasn't given you joy. Why do you serve him? You could be making a lot more money doing something else and so on. And then I said, here's what I learned. I'd already memorized these verses. Uh, the word says in Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The end of the Great Commission and also Hebrews 13.5, a lot of promises of his presence. So I would literally, sometimes if nobody's walking close to me, I would literally say it out loud, walking to class. You're right. I haven't felt the Lord's presence in weeks, but that's my issue. I'm an emotional person. I'm flawed by the fall and I can't trust my feelings. Mm. I don't have to feel his presence for me to have his presence. His word that I believe with all my heart says, God is with me. Therefore, I choose to believe that sometimes I feel it and I feel very worshipful and sometimes I don't. So I have to use the word to teach me truth. It's an idea of Romans 12 too. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why my own view of counseling, though I'm not a counselor, is cognitive or cognitive behavioral therapy because it starts in the mind. Spiritual experience begins in the mind, Stuart Briscoe said in a sermon I heard in 1972. Mm-hmm. And R.C. Sproul in his book on doctrines, great book on essential doctrines, short chapters on each. And he says in the introduction, you can have theology in the head, without having it in the heart, but you can't have it in the heart unless you first have it in the head. Mm. Truth changes us eventually. I don't always feel the things I believe about God, but that's because of my humanness. It doesn't Mm. mean that truth is not true. I preach that truth to myself. I even have handouts I could send anybody who would email me uh, on the concept of preaching to yourself because it's the main thing that's kept me sane, memorizing scripture so at a moment's notice, I can talk back. Then recently, I was really depressed back in the late fall when I had some writing to do, ironically, on depression, and I'm lying on the couch, and I just want to escape, uh, and I didn't feel motivated to get going, and I lay there without intentional effort, and scripture came to mind uh, that I'd memorized. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lamentations 2, 22 and following. In other words, that comes back to me by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit just when I need it. I'm not saying it ends my depressive episode. It's not as easy as quoting a verse and throwing it at depression, but it sustains me. It it helps me believe more what the word says and gives me strength to go through my day, even if it doesn't totally relieve me of that episode. Yeah. It reminds me of Psalms 119, uh, 105. It's been ministering to me recently of just your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So even in those moments when our emotions fail us or are deceitful, the, the Bible even says the heart is deceitful above all else. But yeah, just that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. John Piper says in Future Grace on the chapter on fighting despondency, mm-hmm. uh, it's really helpful to me. He says, no matter what causes depression, he doesn't discuss that. It may be a genetic predisposition. It may be circumstantial when you've gone through a great loss and can't recover because we all recover at different rates. It may be, um, could be a spiritual attack. I don't know. He said, whatever the cause is, you still have a spiritual battle to face. There's a lot of controversy about causes of depression, and it's very complicated. Uh, But at the same time, I still have a spiritual battle because it affects my thinking. It affects my motivations. It affects what I believe. So I have to fight back with truth no matter what the cause is. I remember you shared when you went to India one time to speak, I believe it was at like a campus or something. And I remember you saying that as, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as you were descending into the airport that you were landing, that you started to have this like overwhelming spiritual attack. Do you mind kind of talking a little bit about that, of of what that was like? In 2001, I first went to India at the invitation of the head of Gospel for Asia, and I taught a course there for two weeks. And when I uh, landed in Cochin, South India, I was alone, dark clouds, and when that airport 
when I approached the airport and that plane, obviously I wasn't flying it. There was something totally overwhelmed my spirit that was as dark as those low lying clouds. I can't explain it. I had never had an experience of oppression like that. This was mm. oppression. And we had a three hour drive through India through a lot of poor areas to get to their area of India where they had their seminary, where I was going to teach. It was one of the most horrific horror experiences of my life. I can't, I cannot find the words for it. And I thought it might be because when I travel, I don't sleep well. I'd spent a night in a motel in Europe on the way. I didn't sleep well. And I thought, well, there's physical explanations of that. I was just really tired and needed to sleep. Mm -hmm. But I recall when I got there, and this is unusual for me, I got there at lunchtime on campus and I couldn't eat. I laid in that door, a room they gave me and screamed and cried and recalled every memory verse I could to fight that feeling. Called mm. my wife, knowing it was 2 a.m. at home to wake her up, crying and said, I want to come home. I, I did not want to be there. But you have to realize that though other religions like Islam is encroaching and some Buddhism, that's a country dominated by Hinduism. Evangelical Christians are um, easily in this less than 10 percent, probably closer to five in that country. So I'm going into territory that's the enemies. I'm not a threat like Billy Graham would be going to India or anything at my <laughs> level, but still it's warfare. And then, uh, okay, the next year, well, two years later, next year I went with my wife to the same place, didn't have an attack. I said to the Lord, I want to go with somebody. And mm -hmm. I had my lovely bride with me. I did not have that experience. Two years later, for the first time, I went to the Buddhist-controlled nation of Sri Lanka, south of India, a little teardrop-shaped nation, and I taught at Lanka Bible College for two weeks. I had, I had sort of written off what happened two years before, and this was worse. We were approaching the airport in Sri Lanka. It was almost midnight. I had rested well in Singapore at a mission compound for two days and nights, caught up on my sleep from the travel, so that wasn't an issue. I was on a tour of the bay, which uh, in a very industrial area there in Singapore, and just thanking God that while going and serving and not getting paid for it and getting tired, I said, Lord, this is such a privilege to see your world uh, and to meet some missionaries there. That night at midnight when that plane landed, I thought I was going through hell inside, all just mm. like a fuse had turned off. I would see people, and these are lovely people, and I learned to have some good friends there who were Sri Lankans. But I saw that dark skin, and I said, I hate everybody. I see I want to go back home. It, I, hell was breaking loose inside me, and I was mm. alone. And then we had another three-hour trip in the middle of the night. We would go through parts of the city where literally, no exaggeration, I saw rats in the street as big as cats, trash piled up, and I said, this is not home. This is foreign. And I, I could not relax. I would, my spirit was absolutely overwhelmed by horror. And it, I couldn't hardly sleep once we got to the campus of the city of Kandy, three hours inland. And, um, and then I, I knew then this was more than just depression or yeah. lack of sleep. Uh, and when I got home and I spoke to Philip Stain then over lunch, he said, he said, because of where you were going in part, you were in the enemy territory and you were there to train people to share your word. So um, he said, this is not strange at all in my experience. And, and he knows the mission field worldwide. And I never have gone back since without having a person with me. Yeah. When I went back to Sri Lanka in 07, I took my wife. When I went back to Sri Lanka to teach the last time in 2011, I had one of my students with me who took a course there for credit named Jeffrey Howard. When I went into Africa two straight years, even though it wasn't quite the same background, it was more of a Christian nation, but with a lot of animism thrown in, I took a former student or current friend from a church with me both times because I'm much more vulnerable due to my temperament if I go alone and don't have somebody praying with me and for mm. me. So I will still go to those places if I get the chance, but I will not go alone anymore. I, I know at CIU, one of the core values, Christian victorious living. Uh, so living victoriously through Christ. And I know that was something that always kind of, um, I, I kind of had to wrestle with of like, okay, like, you know, what does that really mean? And I know for you, you've been in faculty now for like 38 years. I, I taught 38 years full time and two years in retirement where I've taught a course each semester the last two years. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So uh, 40 years of, of ministry there at, at Columbia International University. What what have you been able to kind of reconcile when it comes to having that victorious Christian living in the midst of everything that that you've been able to go through? Well, it depends upon how a person defines victorious Christian living. There are probably old-timers here that I respect very greatly. I talked to Robertson McQuilkin, who's with the Lord. He died at 88 several years ago. He was a good friend who, back in the 90s, was my accountability partner weekly for six months. He resigned to take care of his Alzheimer's wife and meeting in his home. But he had trouble reconciling a talk he heard me give in chapel in 2014 with raw testimony, but also how the Word and other spiritual resources sustain me. He said, I'm having trouble uh, with all the emphasis of Victoria's Christian have been reconciling your story with my view of sanctification. He was so honest about that. And yet, but he said, at my age now, he was 86, and I don't have to. But he, uh, but he implied that his wonderful, godly father, who founded the school in the 1920s, the original Robertson McQuilkin, uh, would not have been able to accept it. But I thought it was ironic. Uh, at that time, but one of the great bastions of legacy here at CIU is the professor who died in the 1990s, in his mid-80s, James Bacatch. You can mm-hmm. Google James Bacatch and yeah. still see his resources. He didn't write a lot of books, but he was a he was known for almost 40-something years of teaching here, full and part-time, as a man who turned so many people uh, toward the Lord and a man who was able to teach Scripture with clarity and passion. And he didn't talk about himself, about his testimony, as much as I did. But he was very depression-prone all his life. And uh, I have a chapter where on brokenness in my book, Serve Strong, for those in ministry. And I give his story in one of those chapters. His son, Nathan, who's now president of Wake Forest University, North Carolina, used to teach history as an evangelical at Notre Dame a Catholic School in Indiana, um, wrote an article, The Blessing of Brokenness. It was in the Christian Today in 1994, I believe, on Bucks. It was a birthday gift by his son for his 80th birthday. And he didn't know when it was going to be published, uh, Buck didn't. But it talked about illustrations of how he would come to the dinner table with six kids and not say a word. He was so depressed. Or he would, at one time at a conference, I heard this story from some reliable source, in the 1980s, he was speaking at a conference uh, uh, sponsored by CIU off campus, and he had to stop in the middle of it and leave and said, I can't continue anymore. But you asked alumni from the 1950s through the 80s, what teacher had the biggest impact on you? It was James Buckhatch. His godliness, he didn't let it deter his relationship with the Lord or his family obligations. He wasn't a very happy man, but he was a very godly man. So I, I thought he found ironic in light of that. But to me, victorious Christian living, in terms of my emotional baggage and my depression, is it just never living with depression and somehow appropriating my faith to where I don't get depressed? Or is it that God sustains and redeems that pain, A, by keeping me very dependent upon him? Uh, not just because I need it for moral purity, but I need it just for emotional stability. Can, can God get more glory through by totally taking my depression away? Well, one author I've talked to about this says, yeah, I think he would get more glory that way. Or could he get more glory by keeping me weak and in the, and where I have to depend on him, where I have bouts of depression, but by sustaining me and helping me to have a measure of sanity and balance in my yeah. life and enabling me to keep teaching and never missing class and keep writing. Does that depression give me a greater heart for hurting people, keep me close to the Lord? Does his glory show more in sustaining and upholding me or in taking it away? I'm one who believes that he can potentially get more glory by redeeming pain, whether it's emotional or physical or disability, than he could by healing. Read Johnny Erickson Tata's books, one of her devotional books, Beside Bethesda, talking about the pool in John 5. Uh, it is jam-packed with a great theology of suffering. And she says, I, I, she prayed for healing of this paralysis when she was a teenager for years, now, quadriplegic, not paraplegic. But she's in her 70s now, still writing, still teaching. God, she says, God has done more for me in terms of my walk with him and my heart for him. She said, I wouldn't trade my disability over all this year and all the pain that comes with it 
for the for the intimacy I have with the Lord, much less the ministry mm-hmm. he's given her worldwide, Johnny and yeah. friends. And even our president, in a book I just finished last year, and it came out in November, uh, a book about our president, which is called, Oh God, I'm Dying, our current CIU president, Dr. Mark Smith. His is physical pain. People don't realize this. He's a full-time president, travels and speaks, very dynamic, very effective. But he had a crash at age 30. He should have been killed in. It left him with a pulverized hip. He now has 14 screws in that hip. His left arm is almost useless because it's full of metal. And it was also hurt badly. A problem with his neck. Most days end with him in tears over his pain. But people don't see that. He was open to it in the book. I did 17 interviews with him. Hmm. And the first hundred or so pages of that book is his story, nine chapters. How has God redeemed that pain? He has not taken the pain. He did enable him to walk again, but there was questions whether he would ever be able to work full time or walk again. And certainly he can, but he still has the lingering pain. So God did not take all that away. It's not because Mark doesn't have more faith. He's a great leader of faith. He says, I have more faith because of that accident. Learning to lean upon the Lord, learning to call out to him with lament song, learning to use the memorized word and the truth to sustain me like I've used it to fight, to preach to myself. With that story, Oh God, I'm Dying, How God Redeems Pain for Our Good and for His Glory. Here's a picture of it. That's available on Amazon and a lot of other booksellers online. Or, and But it's a story of how God in His life, there's nothing about me in the book other than I wrote it. Uh, it's a story of how God has redeemed Mark's pain and used his brokenness and dependence to make him the leader he is today. He says, I would not be the leader I am today heading this Christian school with some great mm. statistical effectiveness if it weren't for my pain. So he's, God has redeemed that pain. God can heal a pain just like he can heal a disability. But in, mostly he doesn't always do that. He can. But because he doesn't, doesn't mean I don't have enough faith. Yeah, doesn't yeah. mean that I, that I don't have enough faith. God can perhaps give people encouragement when they look at me speaking or writing or teaching and say, this man has episodes of depression. He describes them in raw terms. He shows the pit, but he always shows the grace of God sustaining him through his yeah. word, through other Christians. And he keeps serving the Lord in that weakness. And that actually gives more attention to the power of God than if I were totally healed of it, in my opinion. The main teaching of CIU is to know him and to make him known. And even through our pain, we can know him and make him known. I I have this excerpt from a book that I've been reading recently by Christine Stakely. And uh, the name of the book is Child of Divorce, Child of God, A Journey of Hope and Healing. And she says this about Jesus. And I, I forget often how Jesus is referred to in the Bible as the suffering servant. And this is what she says about Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's Matthew 26, 38. That night, Christ wept, pleaded with God, and sweated drops of blood. The one who is called the life, the bread of life, the living water, the everlasting, the one who had always lived was about to die. Death, the antithesis of everything Jesus is, was about to consume him. His sorrow was real, so real that we shy away from it. We do not like to picture Jesus prostrate and weeping. It is uncomfortable and untidy. The most popular artist's renditions of this scene show Christ bathed in aurora of golden light, kneeling by a rock, hands folded primly, eyes lifted beseechly to heaven. But scripture shows us our Savior stretched out on the ground, a posture of total abandonment, a broken forlorn figure. God gives us this vivid picture of our Lord to remind us that he knows the messy, broken, unbeautiful reality of our own sorrows. Yes, that's wonderful. Uh, great, that's a great quote. I'd love to read what that lady says otherwise. Philip Yancey and one of his million sellers from the 90s, Disappointment with God is the title. It's a Disappointment with God. Um, he uses Gethsemane as an example of unanswered prayer. And he knew why, because if he had answered Christ's prayer, remove this cup from me, uh, then he we wouldn't have been redeemed on the yeah, cross. Yeah. But, uh, but he says, and Christ cried out, remove this cup, and the Father remained silent. Mm. Yeah, we often tend to think of whether it's circumstances or physical pain or disability or depression tendency uh, as sort of punishment for ourselves or for our sin, but 
not the case at all. In fact, Robertson McQuilton, whom, as you know, has written some great books yeah. about uh, dealing with his wife's dementia before she died. And it was a long period of dementia. I mean, uh, he, he, reti he retired with that in 1990, early 90s, and she didn't die for close to 15 years. And uh, but he, he told me in an interview, he said adversity, suffering is one of the greatest means of grace God has. And he didn't say it lightly. Suffering yeah. is a tremendous means of grace. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's how I've learned to do it, uh, to, to refer to it. And by the way, that book, uh, Oh, God, I'm Dying. I'm not just trying to plug the story. Uh, it's about 60 percent Dr. Mark Smith's story. There's nothing personal about me in there. But the last 40% are 10 short chapters on faith lessons, mm. like the importance of honest praying, lament prayers, uh, the memorizing of scripture, preaching to ourselves, soothing the soul through songs like Dr. Smith, as well as me, have found when we're hurting great gospel hymns, some of the Gaither old videos and so forth you can find online. But it, there's a whole chapter in there on how God redeems pain. So even if a person doesn't have physical pain like Dr. Smith, a lot of that material it expands the biblical basis of all those themes as illustrated in Dr. Smith's story. Is there anything else you would add to that of ways that you've seen the grace of God, of ways that you can start to work through those uh, depressive episodes or those moments of suffering? I'll briefly reiterate, scripture memory, obviously mm. reading and study, but memorizing scripture. So when I'm down and I don't have my desk or computer, uh, the word will come back to me just when I need it. Mm. Uh, and that's the most important thing that in terms of means of grace that I've applied is memorizing scripture and God will bring it to my mind when I need it. Uh, the other that I've alluded to is honest praying, uh, lament prayers, especially taught and illustrated in the Psalms. There's a book that I, uh, I know I quote in the Oh God, I'm Dying book. I don't have it. It's at home to show. But there's a pastor. I believe he's a pastor and I believe he lost a child. So he's speaking not only biblically, but experientially. And his name is Mark. And the last name is D-R-O-E-G-O-P, Brogop. Dark clouds, deep mercy, discovering the grace of lament. How God sustains through being honest with him about how we feel and when we're hurting. Dark clouds, deep mercy, discovering the grace of lament. So another one is simply the body of Christ. As you well know, in Ephesians, the Lord um, compares human marriage to the relationship between him and his bride, the church. Mm. And Christ died for the church. And even though it's humanly speaking run by people, regardless of what kind of church government you have, I have to give patience to people in leadership who are not perfect because I know I am not perfect. And uh, I believe if I try to leave the organized church or established church or just go to an online church and never try to be with people, I believe I'm dishonoring the Lord and the church he died for. Mm. So the church supersedes human weakness. There are things about the church we can improve and always should strive to. There are errors and falsehoods we need to confront. But at the same time, it's a bride for whom Christ died. Yeah. And uh, the reason... I want to love that church very, very much. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was a book that came out several years ago. One of the authors was uh, um, Kevin DeYoung, I believe. Uh, he's pastoring up near Charlotte now, North mm. Carolina. He was in Michigan. And oh. uh, it was Why We Love the Church. It was co-authored with someone else. And it just gave a positive glance to such of the negative feedback some had of the organized church. And it gave a historical look at a lot of the criticisms and I think it was just a breath of fresh air. It's a mm. book called Why We Love the Church. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, one or two people over the years when I was at my worst that I would call and say, pray me through the day. I don't think I can wait till bedtime when I sleep to escape this pain. Mm. A lady who's with the Lord now who had severe physical pain and was an invalid, but a prayer warrior. Numerous times in the early 2000s when I was at my worst, it tended to be worse on Sundays, even when I wasn't speaking somewhere. I'd come home, I'd take my nicer clothes off, I'd lay on the bed and rock and hold my toes, and I would just, I just wanted to die. And I would say, I call, I call Louise, 
and it didn't suddenly take everything away, but I had somebody to call. She would pray for me. And when she prayed, you just felt like she was in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. She was in pain herself and she would pray for me. She got me through some Sunday afternoons. And another friend I have now, I dedicated the book Serve Strong to in 2014, Howard Blomberg. He's a handyman, a carpenter, but he used to be in ministry and worked here for a while in financial aid. And when I am at my worst, I can call him and he'll pray for me. I don't even have to ask him to pray over the phone. He says, let's pray right now. Mm. And sometimes he starts crying out loud. He's hurting for me. And you got to hope you have a friend like that. Mm -hmm. So God gives his body one or more people. But I've discovered something. Galatians 6, 2, as you well know, says, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And I know I can't be gut level honest with every Christian I know. But I need one or more people that I can call and say, I don't feel God's presence and I'm doubting him right now. Or mm -hmm. I am hurting over something related to a grown son. Or I am hurt. I am so depressed. I think I'll never get any better. I need your prayers right now. I need to have somebody I can call. And Howard, somebody will always stop what he's doing and pray for me. If I call, I've got to have somebody that I knew they wouldn't be upset if I woke them up at 3 a.m. and called them. And everybody needs a friend like that. And I have one or two, even now, that mm -hmm. I can call. And so the body of Christ, uh, asking for their prayers, their encouragement. My wife is certainly included in that for me. But uh, those are the three main means of grace, his word and uh, prayer, honest praying, and the body of Christ and the friends he gives who can pray with me and for me and give me counsel. And that may include a Christian counselor. Um, I believe there are insights about human psychology that God can give because all truth is God's truth. Mm. Psalm 19, the first six verses deal with nature and the world, and it doesn't mention man specifically, but man is the apex of God's creation. So almost all medicines that can be helpful temporarily for depression and all other type of medicines for pain come from ingredients God put in this earth. Mm. So that's called common grace by theologians. Yeah. A theology that says some things God gives for people to experience that aren't just for his church or those who are believing him. It's an area of common grace. So I don't think I am not having faith in God if I get medicine for a headache yeah, or yeah. if I get medicine to help with an issue in my body. Mm -hmm. like a lot of pain after a surgery recently. No, uh, I believe I'll take that anti-inflammation pill because temporarily it'll help me. I am not resisting faith because God has provided that through his common grace. And uh, same with antidepressants. The studies more recently show that there is only a sm small difference between the help of antidepressants and placebos. And yet there is some help for some people temporarily with depression, antidepressant. And I don't believe if I take them for the sake of my stability that uh, I am um, not having faith in God, because mm -hmm. again, I think that's common grace. However, I've not been on antidepressants for quite a while. I can't mm -hmm. handle the side effect, but I don't think I'm necessarily weak in faith because of if yeah, I do yeah. take them. Yeah. And I believe counseling can be a means of grace. Uh, they, I've never had a counseling session that wiped out my depression. I never expect to, but they help me deal with the symptoms. Uh, how does my depression affect my relationship with my wife when I tend to be down and moody and edgy and irritable or with my grown son who lived with us? They help me deal more with the symptoms of it. Uh, and I found that very, very helpful, even though it's very hard to measure the effectiveness sometimes. And the dog. Oh, uh, yeah, the dog. Yeah. yeah Dotson, it's 14 on May 27th. And uh, he's not as lively as he was, but dogs. And now Stephen has a new pup. He lives with us, my younger son. Uh -huh. He has an 11 month old Dotson. And sometimes they drive me crazy, but uh, they make me laugh. My wife said yeah. after we got Farley, whom you have met, I believe, we had Farley. We got him in 2007 when he was two months old. Um, and she said, if I had known a puppy would make you laugh so much, I would have gotten one for you a long time ago. Also, studies are, I know everybody has their supplement or peel, but the studies are pretty strong on the value of vitamin D. And it's a fact that the areas of the world which have the longest winters and the longest days, sometimes weeks without any sunlight, like the Scottish Highlands, uh, they have some of the highest cases of depression by people who are not depressed uh, for the rest of the year. D by the way, I know I'm going fast here. If I had to tell a believer to get one book 
that dealt with depression from a Christian perspective, I would get David Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y. It's a small book, 114 or so pages. Christians get depressed too. I just want to say this as we're wrapping up is that there's something that you told me that has ministered to me uh, more than I think anything that anybody has ever told me. And uh, and I, I think what you said, you said um, it's better to leave flowers in warm hands than in cold hands. And you were talking about the whole idea of uh, when somebody dies, uh, there's there's this tendency for everybody come out of the woodwork and to say like, oh, this is how much this person meant to me or like, oh, this is what I would have told him or this is what I, I should have done. But you were just saying that like it's too late at that point. And, you know, it's so much better to be able to do that while they're alive than to do it when when they're gone. Um, but I wanted to thank you for that because that has changed the way that I even live my day to day life of just saying, Lord, help me not miss. Uh, the, the flowers that you threw, you working through me, that you want to give to others, um, you know, while they're still here, while we have this moment together, because sometimes we wait for those moments. Oh, well, I'll get tomorrow. And the, the Bible says that the days are evil and we don't have that opportunity always. So thank you for that little. Uh, yeah, put that is that no one can smell the flowers on his coffee. Mm. And so therefore give them verbal bouquets now while they're alive. Yeah. So in one case or two, I've, I've known a former pastor with whom I worked at Cornerstone um, who died several years ago at age 68. And he was fading pretty fast about five years after he moved away for another church. And I wrote him a long letter uh, telling him some memories and things I appreciate about him because I, I thought of that statement. Mm. I want Rick to know before he dies how much he meant to me and how much I respected him. And I gave him some specific reasons to whether that's verbal or written, uh, let people know. Uh, what you appreciate, how they've ministered to you uh, while you still can. Mm. Uh, the, no one can smell the flowers on their coffin. Well, in saying that, thank you so much, Dr. Powell, uh, for everything that you've done, not only for me, but for so many countless others. And I know you give all glory to Christ that is working through you. Um, but uh, just thank you so much uh, for being such a good friend, uh, a mentor to me, um, just a brother. And uh, is there anything else that you would like to say to those that are listening or watching this podcast? For people reading my website and my blog is not going to cure all depression, but I do have a blog where at least twice a month I write an article. A lot of it's my personal struggles on how on a given day, how did God sustain me? I do book reviews of some of the books I've mentioned and others mm -hmm. uh, that I think would be helpful. I give some up-to-date research uh, on uh, the different aspects of depression and a lot of personal experiences and how God sustained me. It's called penetratingthedarkness.com. If you put that in the upper left URL, it'll go straight to my website, and you can click on blog, and you can uh, uh, subscribe. Obviously, it's free, and you would get two or three a week, uh, a month, and um, most of them deal directly or indirectly with depression and faith. And I'll have it in the description of this podcast for those that are either watching or listening to this. You can just click it. Even if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, there'll be a URL and you can just click it and uh, subscribe. I, I get your stuff in my, uh, in my mail and I read it all the time. So uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, Dr. Powell also is the author of many books. Uh, he mentioned many of them uh, today. His newest book, Oh God, I'm Dying. And another book that he wrote that I've, I've read and I have in my collection is Serve Strong. And uh, it's just uh, some encouragement for those that are serving, no matter w in what area. A serious layperson who teaches Bible especially could benefit, mm. but especially pastors and missionaries yeah. and people uh, who are heavily involved in some form of ministry. It's about 24 short chapters on truths or principles that give resiliency and endurance when you don't see fruit, when you face warfare, when you're weary and tired and want to quit. What gives resiliency? And it's and also a lot of illustrations, Virgin, John Newton, Dwight L. Moody, some from my life and others uh, to illustrate those principles as well. Dr. Powell, would you please just pray uh, for those that are listening or watching this? Father, I thank you for uh, your grace. It's not only through your word and through your people, but through opportunities to serve you. I pray that someone listening would either through one of the resources I recommended that they read or through this talk, that they would be encouraged and to know that even when you don't remove pain, you sustain and you redeem it and you use it to expand our borders of influence. And thank you, Lord, for that. And there will be a day, Revelation 21, 4, yes, and then you have a new earth, and there will be no more mourning, no more death, 
No more tears, no more pain. And we look forward to that. Amen. Heavy heart, no matter where today finds you, there is color in this chaos when instead of leaning into the chaos through our own strength, our own ability, we instead lean into the chaos, leaning into our creator, savior, sustainer, the only one that can make us whole. And there is a color even through this. So no matter where today finds you, I pray that this episode, this this time that I've had with Dr. Terry Powell has ministered to you. I wanted to wrap today's episode up with a song that has ministered to me in the midst of a lot of my pain and hurt. And the name of the song is So Be It. And it's by the band My Epic. And this song is very uh, impactful for me. Because the, the whole concept of this phrase, so be it, comes from the word amen. The word amen, if you translate, if you break it down, it means so be it. And so when we pray and we, we surrender to the Lord, we're, we're literally say, so be it. Lord, whatever you want to do, whatever you're, you're, you're wanting to accomplish through this, so be it. And this song is talking about this whole idea that in the midst of our pain, when we can't see the shore, when we can't see the hope that we are longing for, that we, it's like a flare shooting up in the midst of a vast ocean. And it's just saying, so be it. Lord, I want to be able to still see you in the midst of all of the pain that I'm going through. So heavy heart, I pray that this song will minister to you no matter where today finds you, the highest of highs or the lowest of lows. May our heart cry out even when we can't see what we are longing to see. May our heart cry out with a prayer saying, Lord, so be it. I wanna see your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
I still 